You're listening to In the Green Chair, a podcast series by Relay Education, a Canadian charity that delivers hands-on quality programming about environmental topics, renewable energy, climate change, and green careers. If you're looking to start, grow, or transform your green career, this show's for you. I'm your host, Madison Kendall. If Ontario isn't the first province that comes to mind when you hear the term forestry, I'll go out on a limb and say, you're not alone. That being said, the forest industry in Ontario generates over $18 billion in revenue and plays a key role in the government's vision to create jobs, boost economic growth, and enrich communities across the province, which is covered by 46 treaties. Treaties, by the way, were negotiated on the basis of mutual respect and determine how lands and resources are to be shared. And while it's generally accepted by Indigenous peoples that forestry must be practiced, there are concerns around the protection and health of the forests, in part because many Indigenous peoples still live in forested areas and obtain their food and medicine from the forests. And that brings me to our guest today, Isabel Allen. Isabel is currently one of eight Indigenous registered professional foresters in the entire province. Her vision for healthier future forests? Looking at the landscape, literally and figuratively, with both eyes. Here's my conversation with Isabel. Hello, Isabel. How are you today? Hi, I'm good. How are you? I'm doing very well. You look lovely. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Put on my nice earrings for this. Very nice. Very nice. So can we start with the basics? Sure. I am the project forester for a company called Wakotuin Development. And that word is Cree. Um, and it means the kinship or interconnectedness of relationships. And it specifically is talking about how humans are just a piece of that. We're not separate from the environment. We're a piece of the environment. Um, So the main thing that I do is I work with our owner communities, like their lands and resource departments, um, to build their capacity to participate meaningfully um, in like the forest management planning process, which is governed by um, the Ministry of Natural Resources and Forestry, or they've changed their name a lot recently. So I'll I'll stick with that, the MNRF. (laughs) Just to clarify, so it sounds like there are a lot of moving parts. Mm -hmm. Can we break down sort of what the structure looks like? For the most part, forests themselves are managed provincially. So we're talking about crown land here. And even some of the communities I work with, the term crown land is almost a triggering word. It's like, that doesn't belong to the crown. (laughs) But I'll keep calling it that just for current day terminology. So we have crown land, which is like over 90% of the forest, which is managed by the province. So that's ultimately the MNRF, so Ministry of Natural Resources and Forestry. They're the ones that write the guidelines um, and have to approve the forest management plans. Hmm. Under that, There's the people that actually uh, write the forest management plans, which are often funded by the companies that are out there doing the logging, the harvesting, and also the regeneration. So like the replanting, the spraying, the road building, Um, a responsibility of both the government and industry is to consult with First Nations to make sure that they approve of any of the plans that are being done on their lands. So as the projects forester for an indigenous organization that's kind of where my role lies my goodness what an intricate web 
Lots of lots of communication, it sounds. Exactly. I'm very curious about where you've come from in terms of your knowledge and understanding and values regarding nature. Were you always a nature lover and adventurer? I saw that you had a, a whitewater canoeing certification and you worked with uh, non-releasable raptors and songbirds. Yeah. I mean, I would say um, lifelong, <laughs> lifelong nature lover. Um, when I was in high school, there was a program called Terra. That's where we did the songbird banding. We did the whitewater canoeing certification and we did outreach to the public. And I think that was a turning point for me because I, I always knew that I was going to go to university um, and pursue a career in the sciences, but I didn't know that I could do that in, with an environmental twist, like working outdoors all the time. So that was that was a, a pivotal point for me where I was like, oh, I can pursue environmental science like as a career. That's pretty cool. Hmm. Can you describe the differences between the indigenous knowledge that you learned from your community and compare that to learning in a Western colonizer academic setting? Yeah. So it's the Western academic setting was definitely more structured, like with with strict boxes of how everything was was going to go. But it kind of comes back to that two-eyed seeing principle of having both of them are looking at the same thing, but with a different lens. So I like to talk about uh, the way I kind of describe that to people sometimes is we can never quantify a forest, truly. Like we can never know all of the different trees, all of the different species, all of the different connections that are in there. I mean, we've got some pretty cool technology now, so like LIDAR with the little photons coming down, we can get a pretty good picture of what the landscape looks like. But by the time you process that um, and get it onto your computer, one of those trees fell down. Or like, it's never going to be a complete picture of the forest. So it's useful for sure to have that, to be able to quantify like, okay, well, we know the leading species is this. We know that the slope is this on this hill. Um, we know that there's great, um, like a salt lick here for moose to use, but the indigenous side is just knowing already that that whole ecosystem is there and that all of the connections between all of the things in the ecosystem, we're never going to understand. So you have to respect it as it's a whole, as its entirety and don't, don't mess it up. Like, don't let those connections stay there and do their thing because we, we don't know better than them. True. Very true. I want to just quickly chat about the language. I think language is really, really important. And I'm going to reference Robin Wall Kimmerer, who spoke about the language that we use with even natural resources. Like We call them resources instead of something different that doesn't immediately bring to mind something that we can take and you know there's crown land so there's there's all of this terminology that is very <clears throat> western how how do you approach that in your communications when you're talking to government and industry we've been building our relationships for the last few years with industry and government um to try and reach a place of better understanding of each other because we know that there's a pretty big uh, gap when it comes to like the indigenous way of seeing things 
and the, the Western way of seeing things or the scientific even way of seeing things. And um, you mentioned Robin Wall Kimmerer. I think her Braiding Sweetgrass book does a great job of talking about how we can weave those things together. But one of the, a term that I like for, we're talking about language is doing two-eyed seeing. So that's something that I, I promote in my discussions between all of these parties. Um, but to elaborate on that, that's a term, it was coined by a Mi'kmaq elder. I believe Albert Marshall was his name. Um, but it's just talking about being able to use both of your, your eyes or those two perspectives of the indigenous way of knowing, which is more holistic, like looking at the larger picture, um, as a whole, and then using that Western or scientific method way of looking at things, which kind of breaks it down into its components and analyzes them and using them both together for the best possible management solution. Um, so I, I think I really truly believe we need both in order to be as efficient and respectful as possible when we're doing forest management. You, you've brought up a couple of times the word respect. Can you explain a little bit more about what respect looks like in forestry and forest management? I'm going to go again on the, the Indigenous side of things here. That's, I think, the, the ultimate piece that they want to make sure um, goes into the way that forests are managed is with a look of respect. So respecting the whole thing, like respecting the land, the soil, the birds, the mammals, the fish, the air, all of it. It just all deserves respect as a part of a network and the connections between them as well as like we it's a reciprocity thing like we are getting resources or some sort of service from these ecosystems and it's respectful to you know say thank you say miigwech <laughs> and do it in a way that's not um harming them any more than we need to like I guess to try and explain it more, like the viewpoint is um, like the seven generations principle. So we're looking, and this this hugely applies in forestry. Um, so looking at seven generations from now, are we providing for the needs of that generation of people with what we're doing today? And are we respecting them and their needs? Yeah, and I mean, a, a rotation on the boreal forest can be about 70 years. So it's we're not planting trees that we're going to harvest. Can you just quickly explain what rotation is as a practice? Yeah. Yeah, so rotation is um, kind of the, the age or the length of time between harvests on a forest. So we know um, most of Ontario has already been harvested at some point. A lot of places have been harvested twice, maybe three times. Um, and so a place uh, like Chile, somewhere down south, close to the equator that has year-round growing season, they'd have a super short rotation. Like they can grow a tree and harvest it in like 15 years. Up here, especially in the boreal forest where I live, I mean, sometimes they're looking at 50 for the mills because they're trying to like get things done as quickly as possible. But 70 to 80 is probably more holistic view of what it, how long it takes to regenerate a forest after you've cut it down. Hmm. In, um, in an article that I read about you, you had talked about people who can go from high school straight into forestry if they have bush smarts. What are bush smarts? So like if you just 
know how to compose yourself in the bush? Like, do you know how to use a compass um, and a map? How to not get lost? How to identify species? Um, there's tons of jobs in the forest industry that employ people that have those kinds of skills, especially now it's more even technological. So can you fly a drone? Uh, can you do a mapping analysis on a desktop? Those are those are big jobs coming up in forestry right now. Wow. That's really interesting how they're integrating technology. So to, to become um, a, an RPF, what does that entail? And, and can someone work without that? Can they be an, an unregistered forestry forester? <laughs> Yeah. So there's forestry techs, there's forest ecologists, biologists, like it's, it's a huge field, but the RPF specifically, those are the people that have a stamp. Um, it's similar to engineering. Like you get a ring at your graduation ceremony, you get a stamp and you get a little more, uh, responsibility for managing the forests. Right. So you're at, uh, Wakotawin development group, social enterprise. What does your typical work week look like? It's quite varied and depends on the season. <laughs> so I am majority working from home in my home office. Right now, my big project is planning an Indigenous land symposium. An Indigenous land symposium. Can you tell me a little bit about what an Indigenous land symposium is? Yeah. So this is our, our first annual Indigenous land symposium, and it kind of came out of the the need to have a network amongst First Nations in Northern Ontario. So we know the way that like forestry impacts the whole landscape. And there's a bunch of different players out there. But for the most part, like industry, they have a, a network where they're able to communicate with each other. Uh, government obviously has a pretty big network where they communicate with each other. But the First Nations who are um, quite overburdened in this process don't have a formalized network. Um, and there's a lot of them up here. And I think they have a lot of the same issues and they have a lot of uh, commonalities that we should connect on and work together on. Mm -hmm. Can you speak to the overburdening of First Nations groups in this landscape? Figurative. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So a First Nation uh, lands and resource department, I'll, I'll use one of the three that I work with as an example. So that's um, Brunswick House First Nation, Chaplow Cree First Nation, and Missinabi Cree First Nation. So their traditional territory overlaps seven uh, forest management units. So each of the forest management units has a huge team of foresters um, and analytics, GIS people, policy people, biologists, working to make the plan for that management unit. And the lands and resource departments are often, I, I would say almost always, understaffed. Um, so there's like one or two people in the uh, First Nations lands and resource department. And their job is to manage all of those forests on behalf of their entire community, which is a pretty big burden. I mean, I've, I've heard it said, and I, I really resonate with the saying, um, as a First Nations lands practitioner or forester, it's a privilege and a burden because it's it's so amazing that you're able to have that connection to that land that's, you know, thousands of years old. Um, but that also makes it quite the burden to make sure that you're managing it 
properly and in a respectful way that's responsible. So in forestry alone, they have these seven units that they have to work with. And then they also have to deal with um, anything else that goes on in their territory. So mining up here is a pretty big one as well. And um, any private lands, things, tourism outfitters, all their the watersheds, so like lakes. Yeah, it's it's a heavy load for anyone to have to deal with alone. That does sound like an overburden, uh, a privilege and a burden. That's a really interesting way to look at it. So there are people who are obviously in opposition to harvesting forests and to the practices. What would you say to those people who are in opposition to that? Yeah. And I mean, I am a forester because I believe that we should be harvesting our forests. Um, But I also believe that we can be doing a better job of it. Like wood and wood fiber, like pulp, is a sustainable resource. It's something we can regrow. We just have to be careful about how we're extracting it in in a respectful way, in a way that lets the forest maintain its integrity as a forest. Um, Another important point there, though, is that we use it, we use the wood (laughs) in a respectful way. So like long-term products. Um, so we want to be cutting down trees that we're going to be using for building purposes or things that are going to be around for a while and kind of hold on to their carbon, um, as opposed to maybe using it for like, we don't need to be cutting down huge swaths of boreal forest for toilet paper. (laughs) You know, like we could be, I think, using a little more, uh, renewable materials in our toilet paper than fresh forest every time, but in, in, a, in a perfect world, what does this industry look like? Something we can strive toward? Yeah, it's, it's something I think about a lot is what is the answer? Where is that happy medium where we're balancing the needs of the people that live in the forests and the animals that use the forests? Like climate change is a thing. So there's just so many factors that need to be balanced to achieve this perfect forestry world. And honestly, I, I don't know what that looks like in the end, but I know it's a lot more communication between all of the players. And yeah, I'll just throw it back to that respect word. It's a lot more respectful. It's a lot less market driven. Um, that's what I would like to see. Mm-hmm. Definitely more of a respectful uh, approach than than a, a capitalistic approach for sure. Exactly. Hmm. My final question for you, and this is the most important question: <laughs> If you were a tree, what tree would you be? Great question. My first answer would have been a black spruce because that's my favorite tree. It's kind of like your classic boreal tree that you see in like a swampy area or even a highland area. Anyway, they're everywhere in the boreal forest. It kind of like represents boreal to me, but I don't think I would be that tree um, because they're very uh, spiky. <laughs> like their needles themselves are quite spiky and hard to work with or be around. Like, like um, So I chose a balsam fir, which is another iconic boreal species, but uh, a little easier to work with. <laughs> are you easy to work with? I think so. I like to think so. I mean, if you're going to uh, be collaborative with me, we'll be okay. <laughs> very, very self-aware. I dig that. Isabel, thank you so much for joining us on In the Green Chair. It was so wonderful to chat with you, to learn about an industry that I had 
no real prior knowledge to before looking all this up, you know, as a, as a Toronto city kid. So it's been, it's been a real joy, uh, very insightful. Thank you for having me. And you're not alone in not knowing what goes on with the forest industry. And that's something we're trying to change. I, I could talk about these things all day. So, you know, if anyone wants to. <laughs> Thank you a million times over, uh, Miigwech. Yeah, Miigwech. If you could listen all day, check out Forests Ontario's annual conference where you can hear Isabel speak on the interconnectedness of life. And if you ever find yourself in Kennebec, Ontario, check out Henwood Tree Farm, where you'll find Isabel and her husband growing Christmas trees and offering educational experiences about the Boreal Forest. If there's something you want us to cover that we haven't covered yet, send us a message, either on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, or send us an email. Until next time, this has been In the Green Chair. <laughs>